Hi, I'm Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to Season 2 of The Essence of Cool. On this, our first episode of the brand new season, we catch up with singer, songwriter, piano player, guitar player, and art enthusiast Kevin Hearn. You know him from the multi-platinum album selling Bare Naked Ladies and their huge hits One Week, If I Had a Million Dollars, Brian Wilson, and of course the theme song for the massively successful TV series Big Bang Theory. Kevin also has a very successful solo career with nine albums to his credit, including his latest release, There and Then. He's also played with Look People, Corky and the Juice Pigs, The Violent Femmes, and my lovely friend Carol Pope and her band Rough Trade. On today's show, Kevin talks about his storied career, his battle with cancer, riding a high with the ladies for nearly 30 years, and his friendship and musical relationship with the legendary rocker Lou Reed. Fasten your seat belts and let's get started. It's been one week since you looked at me. Threw your arms in the air and said you're crazy. Five days since you tackled me. I still got the red ones on both my knees. It's been three days since the afternoon. Kevin Hearn, welcome to the Essence of Cool. Thank you. Hello, Burn. <laughs> oh, I like that. Thank you. <laughs> Most people know you from Bare Naked Ladies. They also know you from your uh, solo career. Uh, you're a very, very prolific writer. But every now and again, I'll look on your Instagram or your Facebook, and you're playing with either Kim Mitchell or The Real Statics or The Odds. And of course, I met you when you were playing with Carol Pope. What makes you such a sought-after guy on stage? Well, I really love collaborating, and I think I, I, I enjoy the role of being supportive to the song, and I think in all of these different scenarios, um, it's appreciated what I bring to the table. I love working with people that inspire me to do that, and so... Uh, it just it's a win-win i've also been sitting in with the violent femmes an awful lot oh wow yeah and they just uh want me to play accordion they you know it fits in with their uh, aesthetic and um that's been a real honor as well well that's really cool because they're among a couple of bands that you cited as one of your earlier influences so to be sitting in and playing with them must be magical really magical uh just uh i feel so lucky it's like my uh it's a dream come true but i can imagine though playing with all these different people uh you must have to learn pretty extensive catalogs of music and not only on on keyboards or a piano but also on guitar and accordion as you mentioned it's a lot of work um but in doing so i i learn an awful lot and i really learn to appreciate the people i'm collaborating with like in the case of uh rough trade um learning some of kevin staples parts was just really illuminating on on why that group was so groundbreaking and successful his chord changes and his choices of melodies and sounds he was really a great artist so uh it helps me appreciate who i'm working with even more You started your musical journey with an interest in bands like the Beatles and the Beach Boys. What was it about them that inspired you musically? The melodies, the harmonies, the, uh, I mean, both bands could take you to a sort of magical place. You know, my my first record was Magical Mystery Tour, and Uh I loved that instrumental on that record called Flying. But, you know, having the band members all dressed up like uh, 
dogs and walruses and (laughs) as a kid it was like wow this is cool i want to i want to go there you know and brian wilson's melodies you know songs like uh, god only knows Mm -hmm. they just really i connected with them as a kid and uh it just i was put under the spell of of music with those groups I really see a lot of that influence in your own music with these subtle chord changes. I hear a lot of really interesting little ads, like um, at the beginning of a song will be something kind of uh, sounds of nature, perhaps, or something really odd that begins the song, but then the song goes somewhere completely different, which is so cool. Are these things that just they just come to you? It, it's a, a part of the actual songwriting process, or are you thinking after the fact we should add something cool in here just to sort of shake it up a bit? I've always been a fan of things like that. Like something comes to mind, like the beginning of Sun King on Abbey Road, if they have the crickets going. And right. uh, I, as a kid, I always liked going around with a little tape recorder and um, recording things around Toronto. And uh, sometimes I, I go in there and, and harvest some of those uh, homemade recordings and use them. And I, I just find it adds another texture of uh, like reality or dreaminess to, to the sonic palette. Yeah, for sure. Another person that influenced me very much in that regard is uh, David Lynch and uh his use of sound, both in his films and in his music. You started playing with James B. and the great Bob Scott with the Look People, um, who also became the house band for Friday Night with Ralph Ben Murgy, which was directed by my old pal John Findlay. So it was kind of cool to see that. How did you end up working with uh, James and Look People? Well, I just want to rewind a little bit before that. I was in high school, and I had a high school band called The Glaciers, and we used to record in my um, in my bedroom or in the Browns' basement, and we made a lot of a lot of weird, fun music. And uh, a friend of mine at high school at the time knew that I played, and told James B. and Bob Scott they knew someone that could play the keyboards really well. And so I started playing with the look people. Uh, I went to see them on Halloween at the Copa. I think the club was called. Do you remember that? I I played there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And uh, I was blown away. I mean, already at that time I knew I wanted to play in bands or have a band and, the band I was in with the Glaciers, we were all very introverted, and I think we tried one rehearsal, but it was very obvious we were just uh, like a basement recording band. And right. here was the opportunity to play with this band that were already out playing clubs. They were all about 10 years at least older than me, hmm. uh, but they asked me to come and play with them, and my first gig with them was at uh, Call the Office in london ontario and i remember skipping some classes um one day so i could get there on time but that's i started playing with the look people when i was in high school wow yeah and and ended up touring the world with them as well yeah they had an audience in switzerland funnily enough in germany and some of my first big tours with bands was over over there 
If you're to describe look people to someone who'd never heard them, how would you describe them? Uh, well, the, the, the line in our bio was Frank Zappa meets Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a, a lot of uh, sort of silly, fun, nursery rhyme-like lyrics set to very uh, tight and intricate uh, musical arrangements. The shows were pretty intense and a lot of fun. Of course, we had the drummer, great Bob Scott, on the drums, who was like the Tasmanian devil. And then we had Longo High on guitar, who's like six foot seven. And, uh, you know, we it was sort of like a, a circus kind of band. Mm-hmm. Um, and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I'd written a song called Five, and he really liked that song. And came to see us at Lollapalooza and invited us down to play at Lollapalooza in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for me, I think I was 19 at the time and uh, going down there and suddenly being in that world. And I remember, sorry, I'm just going on a tangent here, but I remember being backstage and I still felt like a kid, you know, I just finished high school and ended up talking with uh, Tom Morello from, Uh, Rage Against the Machine, and they were still sort of coming up and thinking what a nice guy he was. You know, we were just talking about effects pedals and just (laughs) shooting the shit, you know. (laughs) But he he made me feel comfortable. It's like, oh, there's good people all over the place that are doing this. And, you know, I never met him again ever, but uh, I I remember that trip very fondly. It was my first glimpse into sort of the the bigger world of music right right i guess it's 1995 you joined uh bare naked ladies on the born on a pirate ship tour um what was and they were already pretty darn successful uh it was before stunt but still um you know particularly in canada i mean we just mm-hmm. ate them up right from the you know the the cassette release through uh, and then of course with gordon what was it like to join a band that had such notoriety and such a following already uh, i really liked the band I, I really loved the song brian wilson especially i really felt a kinship with the guys they were more my age than the look people right and so i i felt i fit in in a sense we really got along on the this in the sense we shared a similar sense of humor mm-hmm. Which, you know, it became apparent that's a huge part of being in the band because it, <laughs> it extends out onto the live show where we just joke around with each other. Right. You know, up until that point, I'd been carting my keyboards around on the subway and uh, it was it was a lot of physical labor. And right. uh, my first rehearsal, it was very organized. I was on a riser. There was a crew and... I went down to, you know, break down my gear at the end and the our sound man Robin came over and said, "No, don't you don't have to do that." I said, "Well, I don't." He goes, "No, the crew will do, take care of your gear." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, wow." <laughs> and then my first show with them was in Buffalo, and no, not Buffalo, sorry, Ottawa. Oh. And it was at a football game and we were playing the halftime show and so at the halftime, they brought the stage out into the center of the stage, and we had to run out from the side through a uh, 
a line of cheerleaders that were all like twirling things. And <laughs> <laughs> that was my first, you know, entrance to the stage with the band. I was like, wow, this is, this is cool. <laughs> could, get, could get used to that pretty easy. Yeah. Everyone's cheering and like, wow, it's exciting, you know? Yeah. And then you, you go into the studio with the ladies and record stunt, which yeah. produces the massively successful one week shoots up the charts uh the album goes quadruple platinum both here and in the states what was that rush of fame and notoriety like for you well uh, i wanted to add that when we were a household name in canada and when we'd go to the usa we were still playing clubs when i joined the band oh wow okay yeah and it was very exciting time because you could feel the buzz building and each time we'd go back to a city we'd play the next bigger venue and um we started visiting more radio stations and building our audience up and sort of transcending this uh, stigma that we had as being purely a novelty act, you know, mm. and once that started happening and our audience started building, the record company really got on board. And so there was this real sort of perfect storm of support for us when we were recording the album stunt. Mm. And I was bringing new things into the band that they had it had not had on a record before. Like I was, I was sampling things, making drum loops, um, you know, sampling little music boxes for textures, sampling the guy's voices and building little sort of choral textures on the keyboard with their voices. And that really helped um, freshen the sound, I believe, and made that, you know, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn, but we were all on the same team and really excited about this record. And they really allowed me to explore those sort of sonic uh, experiments. And we were working with a, a wonderful producer named Susan Drew, who'd worked with Prince, and then uh, David Leonard, who had also worked with Prince. And so wow. we were working with people who knew what they were doing. And we made a record we're all really proud of. And the record company was really behind it and put it out. And so there was this huge, just a real rush of excitement and um, really special time. It seems like they really embraced you, um, that you didn't sort of remain the new guy for too long. They did ask me to do a two-month tour. And after that tour... Um, well, we were touring the the Born on a Pirate Ship record, which I was not on, but right. then then we recorded a live record, and then they asked me to become a full-time member and stay on board. Of course, while we were making Stunt, I started having really bad symptoms of uh, what I didn't know what it was, and turned out I had cancer, I had leukemia, and so I ended up having to have a bone marrow transplant and... The same day I had my transplant going through lots of chemo was the same day the record and one week went to number one on the billboard charts. So oh, wow. it was this really extreme, uh, two extremes in my life at the same time. But the band stuck with me, you know, and I'll, I'll never forget. They, uh, they said, you know, whenever you're ready to come back, we'll be waiting for you. And whenever you want to come and play and you feel well enough to do it, doors open so that to me was a real personal and um uh 
uh, professional uh, commitment to me and, and saying we value you and you know get better soon. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's incredible. Um, during that period, uh, and I, I can't imagine what that must have been like to go through, um, literally battling for your life. You wrote an entire album, H Wing. How <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my my brain around battling cancer, being in the hospital, and finding the courage to be able to write. Well, it was very therapeutic, and as an artist, I also felt this might be my last chance. It very well might be my last chance to write some songs and put something out. Um, I might not live to see it be released or completed. Right. Um, so it was a good way to pass the time. And I also thought, here I am in the trenches of battling cancer and i'm on a lot of drugs and it's all happening so in intensely i might not be able to remember it afterwards to write about it or i may not want to come back here to this place in my mind so i just started writing every day i had a notebook in the hospital and a guitar in the hospital and i just wrote everything down and it's a, a truly gorgeous record. There are so many great songs on there. Uh, Deathbed Love Letter, Bone Fight, Mouth of a Shadow, uh, which is a brilliant song. And and a really, ex some one that really took me by surprise uh, called In the Minnow Trap, oh. which is the coolest song ever. It To me, it's like a marriage between David Sylvian and Tom Waits. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> Where did that come from, that song? Oh, gosh. That's like a sort of a, a nightmare in song form, I think. Mm -hmm. There's a, a middle section where... Uh, there's sort of a jazzy middle section, yeah. and I've sampled a lot of the phone messages that I received during that time, uh, whether it's my family or my brothers uh, or my doctors, should say, or there's a receptionist on there who says, please, please call the H-wing, H as in hell. <laughs> like, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, I guess the, the lyrics was just kind of a, a meditation of something in my imagination at the time. Um, drawing from memories of, a, of being a kid up in northern Ontario and, and being with my, my grandfather's uh, fishing or my, my cousin's fishing and seeing minnow traps and uh, just drawing on memories, really, you know. But it's also a metaphor for doing things for money and beware the chunk of bread right. doing things for the wrong reason. I was wondering what the lion chunk of bread had to do with all of that. Yeah. Yes. That could, that could be a metaphor for money. 
Right. Okay. <laughs> Warning the minnows, you know, don't go in there. Don't go in there. <laughs> the, um, the reason I had, uh, I'd suggested that it was sort of a, a combination of Tom Waits and uh, David Sylvian is that in the beginning, there are some sonic things going on that remind me a lot of Bone Machine. Uh-huh. Uh, just real sort of experimental, but very cool. And then in the middle, uh, there is this really cool piano progression that reminded me a lot of uh, David Sylvian's Red Guitar. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah but, I don't know his work too well. Okay. Um, I love that album, Rain Tree Crow. Yeah, do you know that one? I do. With, uh, yeah. Black Water. Oh, my God, I love that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my my um, my bandmates in the Thin Buckle band, Bob Scott and Chris Gartner, they really brought a lot to the table on that one. We were doing drum loops, and uh, Chris is goes beyond playing bass. He he like makes really strange sounds with his bass. And then uh, we also had Martin Tielli on there from the Rio Statics right. playing guitar and. Man, he rose to the occasion because he's a musical weirdo as well. So he is, and one of the most beautiful male voices in Canada too. I I contend. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah, wanted to talk about using Chris Gartner and uh, the great Bob Scott, who I got to work with a little bit along with James B. When I uh, produced a um, a yuck yuck special that actually. Uh, starred your cousin Harlan Williams. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is back in the the mid '90s. We were doing um, a uh, a fundraiser for uh, Sick Kids Hospital, and uh, James and great, the great Bob Scott came on and became my sort of de facto uh, house band, <laughs> playing kazoo's and little Casio keyboards. <laughs> yeah, I can picture it. Yeah. Why did you bring them into? The, uh, the recording studio with you and not, I don't know, the, the ladies or somebody else. What was it about them? Uh, in 1992, the Look People broke up mm-hmm. and Bob and Chris were my, my bandmates and Look People. Mm-hmm. And we still wanted to play together. Okay. And so we just kept playing together, but it, it, it sort of mutated into... Um, sort of Kevin and Thinbuckle and and then I'd been writing these songs in the hospital in uh, the H wing and then I got to go home eventually for a few days at a time and my homework every day was to go up and down the stairs once because I was so weak you know right. trying to build my muscles back and uh and I'll I'll talk about this later with you because we're going to talk about Lou because he's an important part of this particular story. Mm-hmm. But one day I was so happy I I walked around the block and it was the first time I'd had the strength to walk around the block in about a year. And I ran into Chris, Chris Gartner. And he said, oh, how are you, Kevin? Can I walk with you? I said, of course. And he said, what are you up to? I said, oh, I've been just, you know, trying to recover and get through this. And uh, I've been writing songs and he goes, Oh, can I hear them? And so he came over and I played him the songs I'd been working on. And he was the one who said, let's, let's try to go into a studio and record these. And uh, he'll forever be my brother. And uh, I'll always love Chris, not only for that, but I was just a huge important step in making this record and then um bob was such a close friend 
that it, it uh, made sense to have him there too. Cause we weren't only musical brothers, but they were my best friends um, supporting me as well. Yeah. I mean, you've got nine or 10 solo albums, either Kevin Hearn and Finn Buckle or Kevin Hearn. What distinguishes Kevin Hearn's solo from Kevin Hearn and Thin Buckle? I think I started calling it Kevin Hearn when I I um I started using different drummers and doing different tracks different ways mm. because I I didn't want to keep making the same records and as I worked with uh, more people um, I started feeling more comfortable sort of drifting and exploring different directions because Look People was a real thing like it was silly and intense and prog and sometimes i just want to do a nice sort of relaxing uh beautiful song that might benefit from from you know having musicians that love that kind of music you know so i started playing with other people and uh so if that was the case i'd usually call it kevin hearn instead of kevin hearn and thin buckle there are so many great albums in your solo catalog. Beautiful, beautiful albums. Uh, I Thank listened you. to Then and There. Uh, there Are No Fakes, which is a series of uh, pieces that you created for, for the documentary. Yeah. Tell me about Then and There. Somebody in the press characterized it as uh, three pianos, three different rooms, three hours each. And it's a series of um, ambient pieces, ambient piano-based pieces. How did that concept come together? Um, there's a producer named Mark Howard who made many great records um, on his own, but also with Daniel Lanois. They did, uh, like a few would be Bob Dylan, uh, Time Out of Mind. They did a record with Tom Waits. They did a record with Willie Nelson called Teatro. And he was all about really, you know, finding, he didn't like working in recording studios. He liked setting up in a nice environment and really uh, using the energy in the room. And I met him after uh, I had restaged the um, uh, Secret Path show at Roy Thompson Hall, and I didn't know who he was. But, but we started talking, and he told me he was also a cancer survivor. So we oh. talked about that for half an hour and bonded. And then I asked him what his line of work was, and he said, oh, I'm a producer. <laughs> I said, oh, have you worked with anyone I, I might know? He was like, well, uh, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Tom Waits, Willie Nelson, Iggy Pop. I was like, okay, you can stop. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. So... I said, it's interesting that, you know, I ran into you because Bare Naked Ladies are about to make a new record and we're wondering who we could work with. And so I pitched his name into the circle and we ended up making some of a record with Mark. And every morning before we start recording, I would warm up on the piano and he would say, what is that? That's pretty. I say... I don't know. I just made it up. And then the next day, well, what is that? That's nice. I said, I'm just making these up, Mark. It's just, my, you know, he goes, let's make a record like that. And uh, okay. yeah. So after that, 
had been done and the record was out and he called me and said, do you still want to make that piano record? And I said, oh, I'd love to. And I, I proposed the idea of finding haunted places that have energy, like old hotels that have a piano at the end of a hallway in the dark, you know, right. or that type of thing. Or, uh, you know, uh, a hotel that used to be a hospital, like in Jerome, Arizona, places that were kind of haunted. Um, and then the pandemic happened and we couldn't really travel. So we drove to Quebec and he found these places. He found a cathedral that was closed down in lockdown. He found a hotel that was locked down. And yeah, we spent three days, three different locations. And I just told him, tell me when to show up, when the, when you're ready to press record and I'll come in and improvise. And uh, that's what we did. And it was... Uh, quite an emotional time in the pandemic and so it was uh it was a rich moment to sort of sit down at a piano and express myself that way and uh, try to bring some beauty into the picture wow what do you think of going into something like that uh you know i, th I think of uh, keith jarrett who uh, walks into a performance having nothing planned he just, he and his band, he just sits down and he starts playing and the band just follows. Um, so when you're, you're coming into a brand new environment, and especially in the middle of that time too, um, and you press record, what goes through your mind? Or are you just trying to uh, devoid yourself of any thought and just sort of dive into the moment? It's interesting that you... You try try not to think at all or think too much, but you have to think a little bit to follow your intuition and have it sort of make sense. Um, but yeah, it's important not to be distracted and to have have the courage, uh, well, the confidence to to take risks. You know, and I was thinking, well, if if one piece doesn't work and it's not good we just won't put it out you know so it became just kind of fun in that sense did he do sort of pull it a danny lanois what he did with neil young and just uh, amass a, a bunch of microphones set them up around the piano and press record and away you went yeah and he was sitting not far behind me and he also had uh, the signals going in to his effects and he was adding delays and um, yeah. Um, so, so very much like what Danny Lenoir was doing with that Neil Young record then. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. Mark had also recorded with um, uh, Harold Budd and wow. uh, Brian, Brian Eno, you know, so. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. So, so that, somebody who really knows his ambient music. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I was like, if I'm going to do this with somebody, this is perfect, right. and and we really had a great time doing it. Let's talk a little bit about uh, There Are No Fakes. Uh, 24 two-minute instrumentals uh, that I'm assuming you wrote specifically for the documentary. Let's backtrack a little bit and tell us a little bit about the documentary, There Are No Fakes. There Are No Fakes is a film that uh, tells the story of how I purchased a painting, um, which I thought was by Norval Morriso. I've been, it had been sold to me as such with, you know, paperwork to back that up. And I lent it to a show at the AGO and the head curator there informed me that they had to take it down because they thought it was a fake. 
which opened the door to this whole journey of me deciding to try to find out what is the truth about the painting. And so the film follows my journey and characters I met along the way, but then dives deep into the dark underbelly of the story of where the painting came from. Um, through my investigations and my journey of trying to find the truth, I uncovered a huge uh, art fraud ring. And it goes well beyond that into uh, other very dark issues of, uh, you know, of cultural appropriation and abuse and, you know, sexual exploitation. So a very dark and twisted tale, but um, yeah. A fascinating film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, didn't, uh, was not expecting the turn when they went into the whole, you know, the, the ring of uh, fraudsters and uh, the making of the paintings, um, uh, the fakes. Um, but you, it's 24 two-minute pieces written for the documentary. Why did you lock into two minutes? What was it about that? Yeah, it wasn't intentional. It was just sort of the um, the pacing of the film. I was really following where the director, Jamie Kastner, needed music, which turns out to be all over the place. But <laughs> there's so many uh, cuts, and they, it just sort of turned out that way. It wasn't really intentional. But another aspect of it was, you know, this whole journey of the painting and me trying to figure out the truth took years, took years of my life and was very exhausting and emotional. And I was both inspired and saddened by many of the, the stories of the people I met along the way. So not only was I, um, you know, interacting with the film, but I was also uh, interacting with memories and experiences with all these people on the screen and it was a very uh personal and strange experience to to write like that because it was uh yeah it was very raw and real yeah i can't imagine um you know i've tried my hand at a little bit of scoring and it's one thing to uh compose music for a, a piece of film that you really had nothing to do with but then to sit down in front of a documentary that's really about your journey and compose music i can't imagine that must have been a really interesting process it was it was it was cathartic you started contributing songs to the bare naked ladies back in was it for Maroon, I think, uh, where you had one song, uh, Hidden Sun, that yeah. ended up as a hidden track. And yeah. since then, you've kind of uh, contributed more and more songs. In fact, uh, Fake Nudes in 2017, you wrote the bulk of the, the pieces. You know, I, I did propose a song for the record stunt. And I remember Ed saying, like, yeah, I don't know if Kevin should be like a songwriter in the band. Because they just hired me to be a keyboardist, you right, know. right. And and then Hidden Sun was very embraced by the engineer um, Jim Scott, who really championed that song. And it was going to be on the record, but then again, someone on the team said, well, no, we should put it as a bonus track because it's one of Kevin's songs. And that's kind of how it was. And so I was just, I started making my own records, like H-Wing and uh, as you, on and on. And right. I remember Ed said to me one day, like, you always keep your best songs for your solo record. <laughs> like, no, I don't, you know, it's just, I gotta go somewhere. So 
Uh, it turned out when the ladies were about to make a record, I would just say, here's everything I'm working on. You know, it's not, you know, destined for anything. It's just, I'm working on it. And they started using more of them, which, you know, that's how that happened. Is that, that was a, a question I was going to ask is how you determined what song remained a, a solo song and what songs were, you know, open for bare naked ladies, but you essentially let them decide. Yeah, they cherry pick the ones they, you know, the ones they liked. Because so many of the songs on your solo albums really seem like they would be a perfect fit for Bare Naked Ladies. Oh, you think so? I do. I do. I mean, there are some that are certainly, yeah, maybe not. Uh, but there are there are many that sound like they, you know, they have a Bare Naked Ladies vibe. Sure. Well, I learned a lot from them too, you know, like Ed and Steve are both great songwriters and so is Jim, frankly. And I, you know, I learned a lot from them and I've been inspired by them. But, you know, for instance, a, an album like H-Wing, you know, those songs, although Hidden Sun is from that same era and it fits, I think it fits well. We we recently reissued uh, Maroon and included Hidden Sun on the Okay. Playlist, yeah. So not a bonus song anymore, and Good. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we we did an interview with Don Waz, and one of the first things he was the producer of the record, and one of the right. first things he said in the interview, which really made me happy, was, "I'm so glad that song Hidden Sun is now on the record because I love that song." Awesome, <laughs> yeah. And it was like oh, so nice. You don't get higher praise than that. That's for sure. No. Um, no. What do you look for in terms of uh, finding a songwriting collaborator? Is there are there specific characteristics or things that you look for in people? I often find I need help with. I, I like collaborating on lyrics, and I like to work with people whose work resonates with me. And I think another aspect is you want to work with someone who doesn't do exactly what you do like they they bring another color into it but you love that and you are excited about it yeah. and um kind of like you know you you get each other you know and you're comfortable with each other yeah yeah one of the interesting things i find about your your work is that sonically I find there's a lot of, and I think you used this word too earlier on, gentleness in your in that sort of sonic landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas your lyrics can be sarcastic, dark. What is it about pitting those two ideas that juxtaposing sort of the the gentle uh, the gentle music with the more um, dark lyrical content? Well, I think my voice is already a little like Kermit the Frog, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I was going to say, just when I listen to your voice, what I hear is a lot of Ron Sexsmith. Oh, really? Yeah, which is very comforting and is very gentle, and I love that. I love Ron. Yeah, that's a nice compliment. Thank yeah. you. But, you know, if you consider, you know, a voice like that to be a, a strong flavor in, say, a a culinary dish you want to balance it out with something that that makes it presents it in a certain way so i like to surround it with uh sort of lush uh sonic soundscapes and um kind of psychedelic music and i think that that helps it
one of the uh, songs that really struck me, and I, if you'll indulge me, I just want to read a bit of your, your lyric off of Best Day Yet, because it's a brilliant song. And <laughs> again, really sort of demonstrates that kind of gentle sort of musical approach, um, but uh, with a, a kind of a biting lyric. And it goes uh, thusly. I'm ready and set for my best day yet. I make an omelet, I write another check, send it to my ex, drop the dog off at the vet, then I go to work off my debt, down at the old smokestack where our lungs are turning black, and the mayor is smoking crack, down by the old racetrack, it's morning. Where did that come <laughs> from? <laughs> uh, just, you know, in life we have these plans and... Uh an ideal day our idea our our idea of an ideal day and the first chorus is kind of the opposite of that it's like it's my best day yet i uh i cash another check i make an omelet uh you know um i but in the second chorus everything goes wrong and you know you've dropped the omelet you've got to write a check to your ex because the relationship didn't work out um you got to go work at the smokestack where everyone's lungs are turning black. And then I was recording this at the time of Rob Ford and all that happening oh in Toronto. Okay. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't resist the rhyme, you know, the mayor is smoking crack down at the old racetrack. It was all happening while I was recording that. And I thought, why not include it? Oh, you know, oh, just brilliant. Gordon Gano from the um, Violent Femmes really enjoyed that song. Yeah. He's chuckling about it with me, so that meant a lot to me. Oh, it's 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 a great song. Tell me a little bit about uh, Stephen's decision to leave the band and how that impacted you guys going forward. Well, it was kind of a mutual decision. Um, it, our shows rely so much on camaraderie and joking with each other and sort of the audience feeling like they're hanging out with us, which is, it's real. That's what we're doing. But, um, you know, some tensions had set in between Ed and Steve, especially the two founding members, and it was making, uh, everything really strained. So it kind of felt to me at the time, like something had to give, you know, and that's, that's what happened. You know, the four of us agreed to continue and, it's been, it's been uh, pretty cool. <laughs> You're going to launch into a song now. <laughs> <laughs> then, um, I guess not sure, not that long afterward, the Big Bang theme song came along and went crazy. How did that uh, impact the band? Just that general delirium over that song. We noticed we were getting booked again at, at universities and a lot more, you know, younger folk coming to our concerts. And we figured we figured it out pretty quickly. It was because of that theme song. And we had sort of considered that uh, a great opportunity, but it was kind of a side thing. You know, we recorded a theme song for a TV show. We didn't play it in our show. It wasn't in our set. But then that started happening and we thought we should we should play it. And based on the reaction we were getting, it was like, wow, that's in our set now. And we play it every night. And so tell me about how that came to be. I guess was it Chuck Laurie had come to a BNL concert? Uh yeah, Chuck Laurie and Bill Prady. Okay. 
And Ed had just read a book about, um, you know, space or, and did an improv that we always do an improv song or two every night. And they saw that and approached us pretty quickly thereafter and, and said, we'd love for you to do a song like that improv for our, for our new show. Can we send you the pilot? And so the band was off at that point. We were all sort of taking some time and uh, they sent a pilot episode to us that wasn't uh, balanced yet. It wasn't edited smoothly. It was very rough. Mm -hmm. And uh, our drummer, Tyler, was like, I'm not coming back from my cottage to record something for this. The rest of us were like, well, we think we should try and do this. This seems like a good opportunity. And he he famously said, and we'll never let him forget it, <laughs> he said... Well, I'll come back, but this better be the next fucking Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> yeah. so how much did that change your life? Uh, that show, the theme song, yeah, the show, just the thing? acceptance of it and the the craziness afterward. Uh, I wouldn't say it it changed it uh, dramatically. It was just another great fortunate um opportunity and another wonderful feather in the cap you know and it uh it strengthened our our fan base and strengthened our ability to keep going out there and doing what we love to do and we're very grateful for that it was also a learning experience they they had us down there for a taping of the show and to experience uh, being in the studio there with the cast and the crew oh. and the writers and cool. seeing the whole process of an episode evolve and be filmed was really cool. Right. Right. Um, on that note, I'm going to take a break. And then when we come okay. back, we're going to talk about your choice as the essence of cool is actually my choice. And I kind of arm wrestled you, but uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about Lou Reed. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. We're back. We're talking to uh, Kevin Hearn of Bare Naked Ladies and Thinbuckle and Corky and the Juice Pigs. We forgot to talk about that. <laughs> and uh, Look People and uh, your cousin, Harlan Williams, with a couple of albums under the, the name, is it The Cousins? The Cousins, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. He is a funny, funny man. He sure is. I want to talk to you about, and I apologize for sort of... Um, arm wrestling you into uh, choosing Lou Reed as your uh, your choice for Essence of Cool, but I mean, who is cooler than Lou fucking Reed? Um, how did you get to know him? Tell me the story of the, I think it was that you were in the hospital and he sent you a get well letter or something? Uh, well, I'd always been a fan of Lou. He'd been my hero 
I had all his records, knew all his songs, played all of his songs. I had his photo in my locker all through high school. You know, we were on BNL, were on a label in the States called Reprise Records. And we were friendly with the, uh, the head of the label name. His name was Howie Klein. Mm -hmm. And every time we were in Los Angeles, we would go visit and he would often give us the latest CDs that were about to be released. And uh, at the time I knew Lou had a new record and I said, do you have the new Lou Reed record? It was a record called ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And how he said, yes, I do. And, <laughs> and he said, are you a fan? I said, Oh man. Yeah. Lou's my hero. Yeah. And how he said, well, Lou's a friend of mine. And he started dialing on his phone. No. Yeah. I said, you're not doing, what are you doing? You know? And he said, I'd love for you to meet Kevin. He's in the bare naked ladies and uh, he's a big fan of yours and put me on the phone with Lou Reed. And it was, uh, yeah. And I, I, all I could muster was I've loved your music all my life. It's meant so much to me. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And I hope you don't mind me saying that, but that's all I can say right now. And he said, no, I really appreciate that. It's reassuring when you know that your work has reached people and resonated with them. And um, he said, congratulations on all your success. And I said, thank you. And that was it, you know, and right. had that been my only encounter with him, I would have, I would have cherished that. Right. Um, Months later, as I told you earlier, I was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, I was in a real bad place. I couldn't even, you know, climb the stairs to my bedroom. I would sleep in my office, which was on the first level. I was lying there one day, and I heard that sound, you know, when you get a, an email. Mm -hmm. And I looked, and it was from Lou Reed, and he said, hey, Lou, hey Kevin, it's Lou. I hear you're not doing so great. Um, I just wanted to write and say hi, and I hope you get better soon and get back to your music. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's Lou Reed, you know. He didn't have to do that, but he's so kind. He has such a good heart. And I was in such a good mood after getting that email. Uh, it meant so much to me that I, that was the day I got the strength to walk around the block. Oh, wow. And I ran into Chris Gartner and he came over and we went into the studio to work on the record H-Wing. And Chris recommended working with this fellow named Jeremy Darby, who had a studio called Canterbury Sound. So we went in there and Jeremy is a very funny Englishman, makes a very good cup of tea. But as it turns out, he had also been Lou Reed's sound man for over 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And was still working with them. And this was just completely a coincidence. So I worked with Jeremy on H-Wing oh. and he actually got Lou to call in a few times to record some voiceovers. Oh and, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we were sending songs to Lou to hear and he wrote to me and said, Kevin, you've made something really beautiful. You've gone to a place that not many people come back from and you've come back to report on it. Wow. Yeah. Which I thought was a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. And then um, he invited me down to see him in New York uh, with Jeremy. Um, they were doing a, 
a show at a club. It was sort of an underplay for Lou, but he had his wonderful lineup with the Mike Rathke and uh, Tony Thundersmith and Fernando Saunders. And that's the first time I actually met Lou and Lou and Lori took me out for pizza after the show. (laughs) You must've felt like you were walking on air. I mean, what does that feel like? You're, you know, in, in New York with the King of New York and his wife, Lori Anderson, how did that feel? Uh, It was surreal. It was surreal. I mean, I knew Jeremy, but they gave me access, um, you know, said, come in the dressing room, you know? So I went in the dressing room and it was a club. Um, so not a big dressing room. And in the dressing room was Lou, his band, Hal Wilner, Willem Dafoe, oh, man. Neil Young, <laughs> and Philip Glass. <laughs> and we're all sitting there and Lou says, Kevin, come sit here. And he holds my hand and, you know, I remember him saying, I'm so glad you're here and you've been through so much. And he said, you must have balls of steel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then Mike Rathke said, uh, he's going to go out for a cigarette. And so he puts his coat on and puts his arm through the sleeve and accidentally punches Willem Dafoe right in the face. (laughs) 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 And I was, you know, and then Neil Young is standing there, you know, and I'm just thinking like, is this a dream? Like what the hell is going on? (laughs) Yeah. And then they started coming to my solo shows. I would go down and tour with H-Wing and, um, Fernando, Mike Rathke, uh, and Lou, they would come see me play. And I don't think the Bare Naked Ladies music resonated with Lou, but he really loved H-Wing. He loved the dark imagery and the um, subject matter. And I was certainly influenced by his record, uh, Magic and Loss, very much. Well, I was going to say that there are elements of Berlin in H-Wing, I find. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you... you mean in the sort of the sound department? Exactly. Because yeah. exactly. in Berlin, you have the choirs that Bob Ezrin is conducting, yeah. and they're just sort of almost singing like random right. vocalizations. And I definitely embraced stuff like that on H-Wing. Yeah. But I also have, you know, um, in one song, I think it's called The Good One, I have, I've sampled an air conditioner and I'm playing notes on that. And that's definitely like David Lynch material. Right. Yeah. Right. For sure. Um, it was really interesting how you're characterizing Lou, because as much as I love him and his body of work, the Lou that I got to know through reading, you know, fan magazines and Melody Maker and whatnot was this caustic son of a bitch who had no time for journalists right and uh, i'm just going to read you something um it was alan jones of melody maker actually who said reed didn't seem happy for a day in his life except when he was wrecking someone else's day by being entirely to himself which was rarely a likable proposition when i met him his disdain for me was completed by the wet fish hand he held out when we finished. No doubt he wiped it afterwards. The rock journalists who adored him were always treated as vermin, typically because beneath the implacably abusive surface, he cared too much. How do you qualify the Lou that you knew with the Lou that I just read? Well, what was that last line? 
is impeccable. <clears throat> Uh, the rock journalists who adored him were always treated as vermin, typically because the implacable, implacably abusive surface, or under or beneath the implacably abusive surface, he cared too much. Yeah, well, so what is that saying? It's, <laughs> it's, it's saying something about underneath. He was very sensitive, right? Right, right. And I remember when I started touring with Lou, I um, I was reading the reviews and people were loving the shows. And I said, Lou, have you read the reviews for our shows? It's being really well received. And he said, Kevin, take a word from the wise, never read the reviews. He said, I don't want to hear about them. He said, one day they'll say something so nice. And the next they'll turn around and say something so mean and personal. You won't even understand it. Yeah. And I, I took that to mean that he'd really had bad experiences with journalists and he took, he did take criticism uh, personally, you know, and mm. he was very sensitive that way, even though he had a, a tough outer aura. Yeah, for sure. Um, the first time, well, no, I, I probably read a, a number of interviews with him beforehand, but the first time I actually heard him talk about that specifically was on the Take No Prisoners Live album, where he's talking about Robert Criscow and getting a fucking, what does he say, getting a fucking two in a box for your yeah. uh, something you spent a year of your life working on, right? So clearly... And you get, you a, know, B, you get a B plus. A B yeah. plus, that's yeah. right. <laughs> So tell me about the private Lou that you knew. Um, I know that certainly in his latter years that he he and Laurie were uh, studying Tai Chi, which is something near and dear to my heart because I love Tai Chi, and meditation. Is that something that he talked to you about? Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, he, he wanted me to take Tai Chi and... Um, and he practiced it uh, when we would tour, you know. I would look out the window of my hotel sometimes, and there would be Lou in a little courtyard with his sword doing Tai Chi. And, right. you know, the Lou I got to know wasn't the Lou from back in those early days where, you know, obviously he was leading a different lifestyle. The, the Lou I met was a mature uh, poet who had embraced a, a different kind of, way of living uh, have you ever seen there's a few interviews out there where lou obviously connects with the interviewer and um i think those are some of the most illuminating and you really see lou he did one with uh, elvis costello i think on spectacle yeah uh, did yeah. you see that he was with uh, the filmmaker julian schnabel i, yeah. I, I was there he... too i played piano as perfect day we did perfect day yeah. oh i have to rewatch that yeah. <laughs> i didn't realize that yeah. <laughs> but where he was very open and very thoughtful and um you know uh, very unlike the the lou i had read in you know all of those music magazines all those years mm. ago but, well uh, and lou could be snappy you know like he didn't tolerate bullshit you know and he 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 wasn't there to do the interviews like he didn't really enjoy, he didn't enjoy them you know it was all about the music and the art uh, really for him so yeah well tell me what he was like as a boss um while you were performing i heard that he could be a real taskmaster <laughs> you know he could be but he always was kind to me and always treated me like a son and i can only really speak to my experience um 
but he he was very clear about what he liked and didn't like and he was always listening he was always at every sound check he uh he really cared about what he was doing to the point though where every show would be different you know because he would like something on tuesday and hate it on wednesday but he would always come up to me during a show and say things you know once i was playing a piano part and he came over and said that's too smart you know or <laughs> one day i was really into a guitar solo and he came over and he said stand up straight <laughs> and then another time you know i was playing and he came over and it's always like oh here he comes what's he gonna say today and he goes kevin i couldn't do this without you Oh, wow. yeah. So we had a very loving relationship and it, uh, I miss him very much. Yeah, no doubt. Tell me about some of your favorite songs to play when you were working with Lou. Um, I'm Waiting for the Man was a real uh, fun one to play. And he would do the whole song. And then if he was enjoying it, he would just go right back to the beginning and start singing it again. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where, I mean, he just wanted me to pound that piano part. And Tony Thundersmith is pounding on those. The beat is just like, dun, 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 dun. And so we would go for like 12 minutes. And Tony and I are looking at each other like, holy shit, <laughs> we're going to die. <laughs> Uh, and then there's there's actually a thing on YouTube where I play uh, Femme Fatale. It's just Lou and I, I'm playing acoustic guitar, and he's singing. And then, you know, eventually uh, some other elements come in. But to stand up there at the front of the stage with Lou and play Femme Fatale or Pale Blue Eyes, uh, those were just some of the most precious um, musical memories of my life. As I've expressed before, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive Lou Reed fan, as clearly as are you. Um, you know, the first album I ever bought, I think, was the very first live album from 73, 74, and completely fell in love with it. And I didn't actually go back and listen to the Velvets. I just went back to, you know, through Lou, Lou's solo career and bought everything and absorbed everything. I even purchased Metal Machine Music um, oh. and, and tried to listen through it once. <laughs> I, I understand that Lou was never able to listen to the whole thing himself which is interesting do you have a favorite lou album or era no i love all of it you know i can't uh, there's things i i love about all of it mm. yeah. i just couldn't pick well fair enough because the the catalog is brimming with such great material um I loved, I said before, I loved Berlin, as you had mentioned, produced by the great Bob Ezrin, mm -hmm. Toronto's own. Uh, and so I was really tickled when he uh, did the film version, uh, Berlin, live at St. Anne's Warehouse. Were, did you know about that? Did you see that? Uh, I was sort of in the, I was just about to start working with him at that point. Uh, I went to the premiere of the film, Berlin. Mm -hmm at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And I was invited by Lou and I went with Jeremy Darby. And oh. after the film, there was a little after, show, after party. And that's where Lou officially said, hey, Kevin, come to New York. Let's see if we can play together. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think it was important for him to revisit Berlin the way he did with this live, that live performance? Oh, I think it was a, 
a work that meant very much to him. And I think the work was either misunderstood or rejected. Um, at the time it was released because it was, it was difficult subject matter yeah, and possibly, you know, ahead of its time. And so its time came later, perhaps, and he embraced the opportunity to restage it. And, and I think he loved it. Yeah. It was an album that I literally wore out. I would play it at night and it was around the time my, my father had left my mother. My sister had died six months previous from cancer. Absolutely. And um, so it was a, it was an album that really spoke to me in a, a weird way, I guess. I would play it at night and I would my mother would walk in bawling her eyes out and begging me to turn it off because she couldn't take it. It was just so emotional. Well, I just got to say, my mother did the same thing. Oh, did she really? Yeah, yeah she heard the kids and the song, uh, the the children crying, and she was like, right. "What are you listening to?" You, right. It's just off. <laughs> but the song "Sad Song" is just so <sighs> mind-blowingly beautiful, isn't it? it? It certainly is my favorite song on that album, and I was uh, really impressed at how Ezrin had produced that piece for the Saint Anne's Warehouse performance because it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. We, um, we played that song on our, our last tour with Lou. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to talk about Lou's guitar sound in that in just a second, but um, talk to me about his relationship with Lori. You know, again, I hate to dredge up some of the crap from his earlier life, but he... He got a lot of bad press about the way he treated women. Mm -hmm. Yet with Laurie, he was clearly the most loving and adoring husband ever. What was it about their relationship or what was it about her that uh, attracted Lou so much? Hey, they, he loved her and he respected her and was inspired by her and was truly his his partner and and best friend on your your album days in frames you've got a song co-written by lou called floating floating my heart's still beating floating but my heart's still beating floating my heart's still beating it's true things get and Lou's influence isn't just in the lyrics because he even wrote some of the, the words. I think things get funny when your eyesight goes, mistaking your fingers for your toes is a Lou line, is it not? Uh, yeah, and I reached for my dick. It wasn't there. It right. vanished into thin air. That's I Lou. heard that and I thought there, it doesn't get much more Lou than that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you also included Lou's patented distorted guitar, guitar sound at the very end. Yeah. Why why did you do that? Uh it fit musically. Uh, the CBC had asked me to do a, a night celebrating Lou mm -hmm. and we brought Lou's uh some of Lou's longtime bandmates to be the band, Tony Thundersmith, Fernando Saunders, and Mike Rathke. And the day after that celebration, we went into Noble Street Studios and recorded that song floating. So it's actually Lou's band and I, and 
I had those guitar tracks from a recording I'd done with Lou, and I suggested bringing them in for the end of the song. And it was a beautiful moment to hear that in the studio with Lou's friends and bandmates. And we we had a, you know, a, a real special sort of bonding experience working on that together. And I was concerned. Um, I wanted Lori to give her blessing for me to put it out and release it. And so I sent it to her. And she wrote back and said, Kevin, this is epic. I love it. Oh, yeah. wow. So I put it on the record. Um, speaking of Lori, um, I was really touched with um, the piece that she wrote for, I believe it was the Rolling Stone or was it the New Yorker? I don't remember which. Uh, but talking about his last moments. Um, and if you don't mind, uh, I'm just going to read some of what she wrote. We were at home. I'd gotten him out of the hospital a few days before. And even though he was extremely weak, he insisted on going out into the bright morning light. As meditators, we had prepared for this, how to move the energy up from the belly and into the heart and out through the head. I have never seen an expression as full of wonder as Lou's as he died. His hands were doing the water-floating 21 form of Tai Chi. His eyes were wide open. I was holding in my arms the person I'd loved the most in the world and talking to him as he died. His heart stopped. Excuse me. He wasn't afraid. I had gotten to walk with him to the end of the world. Life so beautiful, painful, and dazzling does not get better than that. And death, I believe that the purpose of death is the release of love. What do you think about when you hear those words? I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, you know. And as as much as Lou loved Lori, Lori loved Lou back. And it was um, a so fortunate that they found each other and Lou had Lori in his life to um, help on that journey, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think she had said that um, for the entire time that they were together, even after they were married, that they held, they kept their own apartments, but then they had their own space together. Is that, yeah. did, did they maintain that throughout the? They understood each other as artists and artists need their, space yeah you know yeah. and so they they did what what worked for them whatever that was yeah um men without hats recently i just uh, spoke to, to ivan of men without hats last week and uh, they released um an album or an ep of cover songs back in 2021 called again part one and what kicks it off is a men without hats blazing synth pop version of satellite of love oh yeah have you heard it no, I haven't. You know, it's I when I was preparing to to talk to him, I, I listened to the entire EP, and I was I was preparing myself not to like it because I love Satellite of Love so friggin' much, right? Uh -huh. um, and it's really upbeat, really fast paced, very synth pop, but it really works. Which begs the question: Is there is there a way to redo a loose song that doesn't work is there's there's something in what he constructs as a song that would seem to work regardless of what you do to it oh i think you could ruin a loose song could you <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i yeah. suppose a disco version of something might <laughs> yeah. work. Well, for sure. but satellite love has a great melody you know it's you know i i'm looking forward to hearing that what's the one thing you think 
people should know about Lou that you discovered in your relationship with him? Well, as you've said a few times, there's the the reputation he has of being, I forget how you put it, but uh, he was a good man. He was a kind man and a loving man, but he was a complicated man and he had a lot of, you know, issues and uh, traumatic experiences that he carried. Uh, he carried anger in him that uh, affected his parameters creatively and personally and allowed him to write such beautiful uh, words. And so I think with anyone, you have to be open to uh, allowing that people are compl- complex and complicated and doing the best they can. And I know he was trying to do that to the end. Yeah. 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 Um, on that note, I want to wrap up the interview. Um, just quickly, before I let you go, what's on the horizon for BNL and what's on the, the horizon horizon for Kevin Solo? Well, we just finished a BNL tour, so... We're kind of sort of start shifting into writing mode, I think, for a new recording. Um, for me, during the pandemic, I had a little bubble with my engineer, Kenny Long and and Hugh Marsh, and we made a record of uh, 80s cover songs. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm mixing it and mastering it this month, and it will be coming out soon very excited about it we did a a song by lou called rooftop garden on there cool legendary hearts record thank you so much for spending the time and uh, being so open and honest and i really appreciate the conversation both about your career and about lou's um just amazing likewise thanks it's been nice thank you Heartfelt thanks to Kevin for a brilliant conversation and for being so open, particularly about his relationship with the legendary Lou Reed. For more information about Kevin, check out his website at kevinhearn.com and at barenakedladies.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at kevinhearnmusic and on Facebook at kevinhearn. If you have a chance, do check out his documentary, There Are No Fakes, a fascinating film. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying please support local independent artists. Mm-hmm.